This is the 966, episode 29. Richard Mumtaz, seems like we're really hitting our stride here. Thank you. We've got a really special show today. Tremendously excited to welcome back to the program David DeRoche. David is, of course, a professor at the National Defense University, a security expert, and he graciously agreed to join us on short notice here this week. We are keen to get his take on everything going on in Ukraine and how it relates to the Middle East region. Colonel DeRoche, welcome back aboard the virtual 966 Super Yacht. Oh, it, it's an honor. I'm just looking for the <laughs> customs agents with the seizure order around us. Well, I think this makes, I mean, uh, Colonel DeRoche is now one of one, which makes him the goat of the 966 uh, podcast, <laughs> the greatest of all time, because he's our first repeat special guest. When And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a red letter day for sure. Uh, well, the, the phrase they used to describe me is recidivist. So, yeah. <laughs> We're going to send you some merch. Um, so much to discuss today. We'll cover a lot of ground. We will talk Ukraine a lot, but we'll cover some Saudi-focused topics as well. Before we get started, just really want to thank everyone for listening and watching. Richard, the growth of this show has been really awesome to see with more of you t- tuning in each week. A reminder that most of you uh, who like to listen to the whole show, you can also jump around a little bit. We put show notes at the bottom so you can jump to different topics if you like. And on YouTube, a lot of these segments go out as standalone videos. So if you're interested in just some topics, but not others, that's a great way to get the 966. And then one more thing before we get started, we've launched a new website for the 966. You can check that out and see everything we're doing at the 966podcast.com. Okay, let's get going. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? And just like that, Saudi Arabia is going to be home of a major manufacturer of electric passenger vehicles. This week, the Lucid Group, in which the Saudi Public Investment Fund has a better than 60% stake, announced agreements with the Ministry of Investment, the Saudi Industrial Development Fund, and the King Abdullah Economic City to build a full production factory in Saudi Arabia. Construction of the plant is expected to start in the first half of this year. Initially, the plant will reassemble Lucid Air vehicle kits that are pre-manufactured at the company's primary manufacturing facility in Casa Grande, Arizona. Over time, though, the Saudi plant will build complete vehicles with a target peak capacity of 150,000 vehicles per year. Uh, Vehicles in the initial phase will be slated for the market in Saudi Arabia, which we know is very large. Uh, But Lucid will also plan to uh, export finished vehicles to other global markets, including exclusive models, Lucid, designed to appeal to Lucid customers in the region and beyond. We want to be Lucid customers, so we'll, we'll try and get a design feature in. With a lease extending to 2047, this is a big win for Amar, the economic city, which is the master planner of King Abdullah Economic City. The estimate from Lucid Group Management is that the location may result in up to a $3.4 billion increase of value to Lucid over 15 years. Correction, Richard, we don't want to be customers. We want to be paid spokesmen, and we want to be compensated in a Lucid <laughs> car. But yes, this is really, really cool news and very interesting just to sort of look at it as a whole and see Saudi Arabia as home of uh, electric vehicle producer. David, feel free to weigh in. <laughs> well, I, I, I took a group of Saudis to Tesla to test the self-driving Tesla a few years ago. And, um, you know, they were clearly into it. Um, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously uh, has tremendous potential for alternate energy um, to the extent that uh, every barrel of oil that Saudi pumps can be turned into chemical feedstocks or, you know, downchain, that's that's a win. And, uh, you know, I mean, it makes sense. They were clearly interested in, they're interested in being on the cutting edge of something and not just being the, um, you know, consumers, the global consumers. That's a good point. We've done a segment on autom- automotive industry and, and it arcs back, decades because it's always been a, a, a high, an important goal for them but it, this is one of the advantages of being in saudi arabia's position where you don't have a legacy industry to, to worry about they don't have an internal combustion engine production line you know toyota never came through with it Neon, nissan never came through with it they can and so this this has happened so quickly i mean what they, they first uh invested in lucid in what 2018 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so it's 2022 and Lucid is building a major electric vehicle manufacturer is building a plant in Saudi Arabia, just skipping the whole internal combustion, just moving straight to electric vehicles. It's, 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 uh, it's a tremendous thing for Saudi Arabia, I think, because it's just interesting. You know, they've always had this goal. I, uh, four years ago, they had never imagined it would be an electric vehicle. 
Uh, yeah. So there you go. Uh, good for them for thinking quickly on their feet. And, and as you say, Dave, moving forward on the technological front to, to stay at the front. Mm-hmm. And Richard, you mentioned this, I believe, um, but they're also rolling out a new car, a SUV. Is that correct? They are. You mean uh, Lucid? Yeah. 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 Lucid and that, that should hit in a few years, but they will deliver the Lucid Air later this year, which looks super awesome. Um, I will will say this, because, uh, Dave, you've mentioned this before. Sorry to interrupt, Lucian. No, please. Uh, You know, Rawlinson, the the chief engineer and the guy who basically is is spearheaded and runs um, Lucid, is a detail guy. He, he, you know, he's watched Tesla and all the, all the, you know, you know, I don't think consumer reports in this last auto uh, rundown didn't even rate Tesla because they're so poorly rated. Yeah, there's too many, too many problems. And I think Rawlinson is very committed to making sure that this vehicle, when it comes out, is going to work well and be reliable. They did call it the car of the year, right? The Lucid Air that that's forthcoming. Hmm. Is that is that right? Yeah, it, it got my vote. <laughs> Well, we're we're you know we're a little biased because we will soon be in receipt of our lucid airs, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Richard, my one big thing this week, and the timing is very interesting here with everything going on in Ukraine. But Saudi Arabia is hosting its first ever major defense show this week. The World Defense Show begins in Riyadh in just a few days. Gentlemen, looks like a barn burner. The event will showcase the latest in defense industry tech. As you both know very well, Saudi Arabia is one of the top spenders globally on defense. In 2020, it was the sixth largest spender on defense plopping down an estimated $57.5 billion, according to CIPRI. For this year, Saudi Arabia's budgeted, dispense, budgeted defense spending is down from that figure at $45.5 billion. That's a trend in the right direction for Saudi Arabia as it looks to localize half of its def- defense spending by 2030. Back to the event itself, over 420 exhibitors are registered for the event, which will also feature a special zone for startups in the defense space. Saudi Arabia created a purpose-built space for this event, which will take place every other year. And it looks like American defense firms like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon are among the 72 U.S. companies with a presence there. This is a, uh, David, this is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Oh, it is a big deal. I mean, it's, it, uh, you know, in the past, you know, you had big air shows, you know, most notably, usually in the UAE, Dimdex and Qatar, which is the maritime exhibit. And Saudi Arabia, as in so many other things, are, are kind of, you know, the, the sleeping giant waking up saying, wait a minute, why, why are all these little countries having the big exhibitions? We're the big market. Um, and I think that just given the scale, you know, it's possible Saudi Arabia will eventually push these other shows out. And uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, they're, they're covering every sector of the defense field. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like yeah. you say, the cutter is more marine, and, uh, but this mm-hmm. is they're covering everything. Yeah. Including space, yeah. I saw was one of the focuses, um, which is really cool. The photos on the website are really interesting. Um, they're sort of like renderings of what the future of combat and warfare might look like. Um, yeah. It was really fun to sort of peruse that. Um, so, uh, sorry to interrupt, Lucian. So I guess in the run-up, this is the 6-9 March is the defense show. In the run-up, there's a Riyadh Defense Forum. Yeah. And it's hosted by International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, I think 300 of the world's most influential military and government figures. Dave, does does a, does a report come out of this, or is it really just the proceedings? Uh, a report does come out of it. Um, there's a number of articles that will be published along with it, um, uh, but they're all published anonymously. So uh, I will, when you get a copy, I'll let you figure out which one I wrote. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, well, if, if there's any mention of, of uh, mothballing the Navy, I know it's yours. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're, uh, uh, negative references to Phil Mickelson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that yeah. could be a bunch of papers, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it is. But, you know, so I spoke about how, you know, Saudi Arabia sees itself as, as you know, the natural hub for all of this. So the uh, IISS, they're... Um, you know, their, their big Middle East event is the Manama Dialogue every year. And you have to wonder, you know, will this push that out? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite telling that, you know, you've had a longstanding relationship there. And obviously there are different times of the year. So I'm sure that ISSS views it as um, complimentary. But I think if I were the Bahrainis, I would be like, hmm, interesting. Okay. Interesting. That is. Manama, is your... uh... Oh, please, Richard. I'm sorry. 
the, no, no, just the Manam event's a big deal. It's it a huge. It has been, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's you know it's it's either from the United States to see the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State goes. Yeah. So yeah, it's a big deal, and um, you know I'm sure that um, uh, I'm sure the Bahrainis are you know taking a look around and taking stock. Is there a sense on um, what Russian presenters or Russian companies are like? I mean, with everything going on and sort of a global action against Russia right now, and especially economically, is it awkward for them right now to be uh, there if they are? And uh, do you have any sense on that? I don't, but I imagine they, you know, technically you can't use a credit card if you're Russian now. So, um, I, I think it'd be very hard. I imagine there'll probably be a lot of late minute cancellations mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, maybe they'll present in virtually, but, you know, I'm sure all these defense entities are, are, um, uh, it'd be hard to find a bank that would work with one of them at this point of time. You know, the, the way the sanctions have been imposed, it's basically to leave just humanitarian stuff and uh, energy flow and, and a weapons exporting firm. I, I don't see them getting an exemption from the sanctions. <laughs> um, and actually, that uh, transitions very well to our main topic today, the, the meat of the sandwich. And we're very fortunate to have Colonel DeRoche with us on the program. This is a terrific opportunity to talk about the situation in Ukraine and the impact on the Middle East region. The sit rep in Ukraine is constantly evolving. All one has to do is open Twitter for about five seconds to see that. And so too is the geopolitical situation in the region and the world in the aftermath of the invasion. David, I think a great place to begin the Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. allies, that U.S. allies and partners in the Middle East are sort of staying neutral or tempering their criticism on Moscow, um, though many signed a UNGA condemnation of Ukraine yesterday, including Saudi Arabia. That's really all we've seen. Why do you think this is and could this perhaps change? Right. So the first thing we saw was the uh, U.N. Security Council resolution. And uh, in that, um, the UAE abstained. So that was seen in Washington as kind of like, hmm, you know, I mean, um, although, you know, it's worth noting, I mean, everybody knew that there would be a Russian veto. And so in terms of actually policy impact, um, you know, an abstention from China or the UAE doesn't really mean anything. But um, that was seen as sort of an indication of hedging bets. And there's been this narrative since the F-35 sale to the UAE has reached, you know, it's, it's at an impasse. People are saying, oh, well, you know, they're hedging their bets with Russia. And then there was also this, this article, this idea that, um, you know, the other countries, Saudi Arabia, um, and most notably was also, you know, hedging its bets, um, you know, trying to move away from a unipolar world. It's hard to see, I'm, I'm finding it hard to disaggregate. Some of this may be geopolitics, you know, the United States is a black box. Saudi Arabia is a black box. You know, countries shouldn't be too close. But I think a lot of it's also personal. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the president of the United States, you know, called the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, you know, called for him to be a pariah. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, when you have that, you know, and you have the president of the United States who has not had a meeting, <laughs> you know, and, and has his spokesman citing, uh, you know, obscure diplomatic protocol, um, you know, as, as ways of not having meaning with the person that everybody sees. Um, and there was an article in the Atlantic today about Mohammed bin Salman that says, you know, you know nobody outside of Saudi Arabia, any future other than like him. Um, you know, yeah, they, they want to do it. So, so you've had the UN Security Council where Abu Dhabi abstained. Then you had the UN General Assembly vote where most of the GCC countries actually supported um, the resolution against Russia. But you know, it's a symbolic resolution. And it's worth noting that some of the countries made statements. Saudi Arabia, I believe, did not make a statement. Um, but again, their, their vote was welcome. And then the other thing was the OPEC plus meeting, which, uh, you know, the United States and some other Western countries had called for OPEC to increase their uh, production in order to uh, mitigate the, any downfall in Russian. They met for 13 minutes and they basically said, they basically said yeah, we're good. So, um, you know, what you've had is a, a rebuff of uh, Western led by American policy. Um, but I'm not sure how much of it is geopolitics versus um, just trying to send a message to somebody, you know, to an American president who, you know, is, you know, was seeking to distance himself from these countries and from their ruling 
uh, regimes. You know, it's the Ukraine <clears throat> invasion has really put some of these relations in, in uncomfortable positions yeah. uh, in terms of being scrutinized closely and every action has a meaning. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, as you say. I mean, by the way, this includes Israel. Israel mm -hmm. has yeah, hemmed, that's right. Israel yep, has yep. hemmed and hawed, and and you know, as as an American, it kind of making me uncomfortable. The sort of tepid, uh, you know, given our relationship with Israel for for decades, um, and you know, the UAE could argue, uh, you know, the, they wanted to be sure that that the Russians came in on their side on the Houthi uh, vote, you know, to uh, name them as a yep. terrorist group. Um, mm -hmm. I have a question for you, Dave. <clears throat> and we know, I think we're familiar with the, with the sense in the region with our traditional allies um, of concern about the U.S. after post-Afghanistan being less committed and, and more distracted uh, and, and hedging, looking at other alternatives. And you, I, we understand the, the look east with China because of the economic ties, and that's where the oil markets are primarily. Um, Russia. We understand Russia has done an extraordinarily good job, you know, practicing a sort of gray war mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, using cyber and, and introducing themselves into uh, unsettled areas like Syria and, and Libya. And they, they've they've gained an, a good bit of leverage. When they look at Russia, is it <clears throat> what are they looking at? I mean, literally, this is this is a country with the GDP the size of Brazil. I mean, it's less than Canada and South Korea. It's basically arms and minerals and commodities. Yeah. It's yeah. a stagnant sclerotic economy led by a, a aerocratic, I mean, a, an erratic uh, autocrat, essentially. I mean, is this, is this truly the kind of uh, partner they're going to be looking for? Or yeah, is it, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying, I don't think they're looking for a partner. I think they're looking for the alternative to a hegemon. Um, and you know, you know, the United States is a reluctant hegemon. We were, we were, I don't think we set out to be a hegemon, but basically we were the last man standing. And uh, so there you had it. And, um, you know, you're right, though. I mean, you know, if you can't eat it or burn it uh, or, or kill somebody with it, those are the only things Russia exports. Uh, you know, it's weapons, fuel and food. Uh, so, you know, that, that's basically a third world economy with a um, first world arms industry. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that means that they export a lot of nastiness all around the world. But the, the problem is, I think, I, I don't think there's any great love for Russia. Um, the problem, like so many things, you know, that we view as Americans, it really goes back to Donald Trump. <laughs> and he was so tight with these rulers that unfortunately the party in opposition, which is now the party of government, um, they came to see the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia in particular, and probably the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, especially they came to see him as kind of a proxy for Trump. And because they viewed themselves as friends of Trump, they were closely you know, together and Trump was uncritical of them. They kind of said things about these countries, you know, as a means of getting to Trump. I mean, people, you know, Democratic congressmen who had no problem with the Yemen war while Barack Obama was president um, flipped because Trump was there. And now that they're in government, you know, the these countries have said, well, wait a minute, this guy has spent, you know, eight, eight years or six years calling us names. And then, you know, he's in he's the chairman of, you know. A committee, influential committee. So that's that's caused these countries to say, wait a minute, you know, this is an in cost and ally. And there's also uncertainty going back to the Arab Spring. And I've heard over and over again the um, the perception in the Gulf is that the United States abandoned Hosni Mubarak precipitously for no good reason. Um, and so, you know, they say, well, you know, maybe we need to maybe not ally ourselves with these this other country. Russia is the most willing. Uh, China is kind of playing it low because they basically just want to keep their commercial entities going. They don't want to provoke the United States. Um, but it's good to have that as an option. They, they want to be able to, you know, keep Russia in their back pocket so that whenever we get really tight and say, well, you know, we're not going to sell you, you know, more Patriot missiles unless you have a fully democratic election. They can say, well, 
okay, let's go talk about S400. I think that's their deal. That's that's. I think that's great context, and I could I could uh, lament about Donald Trump actions for hours, but to be to be equal <laughs> opportunity here. Um, from their side, and, and I would, I would have, I've said to the Saudis in particular, you know, you you make a mistake, uh, you know, identifying yourself so closely with any particular f yes. political figure in the U.S. and and this was a really un, you know, this is something they thought was so promising. But as you say, the the Donald Trump the love for Donald Trump, the attraction to Donald Trump, <clears throat> was a, a result of a retraction from Barack Obama because I, you know, adding adding the Hasmi Barak embrace. The, you know, it was very striking, and we're talking about commitments and, you know, who's a, who can we rely on when when mm -hmm. uh, we didn't do anything when we set out a red line for, for Assad's chemicals. Yeah. You yeah. know, they, they were very put out when, we, you know, he negotiated a con, uh, uh, an agreement with Iran without consulting Iran's neighbors. Um, mm -hmm. So so they, they came into the Donald Trump situation with a real grievance and, and wanting to look for something else, which have resulted in, in as, as you you sketched out a, a difficult situation. And of course they see Biden as an extension of Obama, which I do not think is accurate. Yeah, no, 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 they don't. But you know, I, well, let me, one other thing. So um, in the campaign, uh, I, I don't know if you remember going back, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan. Originally when we went into it, it was going to be called something like Noble Crusade and uh, in the Bush administration. And then somebody pointed out, you know, Crusade is not, you know, right. you're fighting um, although, you know, Dwight Eisenhower's memoirs of World War II were called Crusade in Europe, but set that aside. Okay, that was seen as, you know, typical, you know, George W. Rube from Texas. So Biden called for the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to be a pariah. Now think about that choice of words. Okay, um, what is a pariah? Well, first off, he's a Hindu. So you've got crown prince who leads a Wahhabi state and you call for him to be treated as what in that <laughs> is are viewed as pagans um you know from a pre and to be the lowest class of a pagan religion i mean right. it, it it was i mean we use it commonly in english but i i think i don't think we're aware just how i think i think that word's a lot more insulting than it was intended to be I and um you know, it, it, it's really unfortunate. You know, as with so many things, our domestic policies and those forces that compel politicians to say things and do things, like, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan in 14 months. So that's a good negotiating ploy. Um, yeah. You know, uh, put us in a bad situation with our allies. And that was, I, you know, that's a campaign trail thing. And, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Biden is smart enough to understand how important Saudi Arabia is to, to the U.S. Yeah. across a broad mm -hmm. spectrum. That's what you say in the heat of a political race. Um, and it, yeah. th this Atlantic article that you referenced, we were talking prior to the to recording. That's where all the good stuff is, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, this Atlantic article that the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman <clears throat> uh, agreed to, you can really see the confidence that Saudi Arabia is feeling and that government is feeling. And, you know, why not? I think, you know, it's it's uh, come out of the pandemic in a great situation economically. The oil prices are, are helping it, you know, give it tremendous tailwinds. Uh, and and his vision 2030 has has been remarkable in what it's yeah. achieved even to date, um, much less what it hopes to achieve. So uh, they feel in a very good place i think i don't no 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 state like saudi arabia country like saudi feels ever feel secure mm -hmm. um uh, and no country really should They'll always be alert but uh, i think they feel like they're in a good place um uh, they don't like nobody likes ukraine it, it disrupts global markets and it's going to put tremendous pressure in the region again it's going to situate you know it's going to be a situation where haves and haves nots or hurts because the ukraine and, and russia are such tremendous exporters of of, of wheat and and mm -hmm. uh, agricultural ag agricultural goods and so you know places like lebanon is going to get crushed egypt 70 percent come from oh yeah 70 percent of their wheat yeah yeah, um, Saudi Arabia and the, the Gulf states a little less so, but uh, it's really going to have some fallout, just practical, uh, you know, impacts on on living in uh, in in a lot of the Middle East. Yeah, 
No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, first off, you've got a war. Uh, secondly, you've got, um, um, you know, destabilization of energy markets, food markets. What really concerns me is Egypt, because, um, you know, when they tried to eliminate bread subsidies in Egypt, they had riots and, uh, um, you know, Saudi Arabia can afford to buy wheat at an expensive price, but Egypt can't. And uh, I, you know, everybody knows Egypt's important to the security of all the countries around it. So I'm, I'm greatly concerned about that disruption. Um, and I don't see a, a good, I don't see anything good coming from it. So Lucian, can I go off script here? Of course. Um, I know we I have right here the next question. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, I think undeservedly so, the U.S. has taken a big beating about our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, put, put in, introduced a tremendous amount of doubt in terms of our allies. And I think it's a wrong take from Afghanistan, but that's just my position, and I won't share it with you here. But we're working from a perception here where our allies are wondering about us. Does this, does our, our position, our behavior, and, and I think, I think uh, President Biden has done a remarkable job in, sure, in mending ties with our EU neighbors and, and, and reconstituting and bucking up NATO in advance of this. Does, does this change anybody's perception in the region? So if you're, if you're the UAE, Saudi Arabia, you look at, look at how Russia's behaving, you look at how the U.S. is behaving, you look at the, the unity of the U.S. and its, its primary allies, at, you know, the, the Western Europe, we should never be separate from, you know, in, in yeah. theory. Um, well, good, good question. I mean, it's kind of a Rorschach test, you know, it's like, what do you think about Biden? What do you think about Trump? I mean, um, uh, on the one hand, this is Biden's presidency, and Germany has announced that they're finally taking defense spending seriously, and uh, Sweden and, and Finland want to join NATO. Um, but who's responsible for that? You know, and, and I, the narrative would be, well, we finally woke up to the threat that's on our, our shores, um, you know, that's right next to us. So I, I can't see any, I can't tie the developments to anything other than a reaction of what you know, was just a discounted threat proving to be a serious threat. But, you know, I mean, when you're the president, you, you, you get to take responsibility for good things that happen while you're president and, uh, you know, good for him. But the, the Afghanistan, I, I, I think, you know, when you go back to like December, you know, what I said and, and the start of the invasion, I said, well, you know, Putin looked around him and he saw United States that, you know, just had chaos leaving Afghanistan. And, and we're going to be dealing with the problems there for a long time. Um, then you had um, a French president who, you know, is going into a difficult election. You have brand new German chancellor. You had a British prime minister who's on the verge of being thrown out because he held parties during COVID. Uh, so when are you going to get a weaker slate, you know, to, to, to take action? And... Um, and oil prices were what ninety six dollars a barrel, mm -hmm. so you know it seemed like a good a good opportunity for for Putin to do what he thought would be a quick, easy lightning thing, you know, and he'd have two weeks of international condemnation, and then everybody would turn to you know the tennis or whatever, and and <laughs> uh, you know, and he'd be good to go. So it's it's hard to say, but but certainly. Um, you know, this is a sea change in how European partners of the United States view their defense responsibilities. And, and you know, I mean, one thing I could tell you that's better about the Biden administration is that the people who are dealing with them have been in these positions before. So they kind of know how to deal with this stuff. And mm -hmm. things are moving through the government normally. And, and people who work in government are having the opportunity, you know, know how governments are having the opportunity to comment on and shape the policy instead of, you know, trying to get aligned chariot or whatever or um, respond to a tweet you know yeah or respond to a tweet at 4 a.m in the morning yeah, yeah. So i think i think that's definitely a good thing so Dave, definitely if i could follow up on that just a little bit i'm just sort of thinking about what's going on in on the ground right now in, in the ukraine and it's mm -hmm. really hard to see this as anything but uh un, like it's already over and russia has lost already because Ooh. while they may take ukraine the 
you know, the oligarchs are having their super yachts taken. Like you said, you can't use your visa card anywhere you go. I mean, the, the economic sanctions are completely devastating. Uh, the ruble is way down. This is obviously not going at all like Putin thought it would. Yeah. Um, and yet he's not stopping. And I'm sort of wondering, um, what does a hypothetical Russian victory look like now? Like, what is what can happen that Putin might say, I've won, I'm pulling out or I've won and I've taken over. It doesn't seem like it is possible for him to if if he does take Ukraine to govern it. And I'm just sort of wondering what what do you think is going to happen from here? And, and what do you think a hypothetical Russian victory looks like for him to claim yeah. at home? Yeah, right now, I think it's going to be a pirate victory at best. So I think I think what we're looking at is um, having failed in the bloodless, you know, impressive lightning strikes, cyber, it, you know, immobilizes the entire country. And then, you know, my my 10 helicopter loads of commandos land at the airfield. We fly in the airplanes. They move in in armored cars very quickly, grab the president, drag him off to Moscow, install our new president, and then we're gone. And Ukraine is still functioning. And there's just it's just under new management. Uh, I think it's going to be like when, you know, Groshny in Chechnya. Um, he has to win because, um, you know, the fact that you had a color revolution in Ukraine that started moving towards, you know, democracy on an imperfect, uh, you know, with imperfect progress, but um, that's a precedent for him. And so he's like, I cannot allow that, you know, because that might happen to him. So I think he, you know, ha and he, now he's committed the prestige of the Soviet, of the Russian state. Sorry, um, he wants it to be the Soviet state, but it's the Russian state. So he's he's committed that, and he can't back down. He's in one of those positions where you know you got pride involved. It's it's like um, you know it's like somebody slapped him in a restaurant in front of his wife. You know he's going to fight to the death, and uh, well, at uh, least subdue somebody with his judo move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he you saw he his uh, pre honorary presidency of the World Judo Federation was withdrawn. Um, well, and I don't I don't mean to make light of it, but you, you, exactly, no. Dave. So this is why it's so scary. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, you know, he put he put nuclear stuff on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, oh, yeah, we're going to hire a result. And what's really amazing is, you know, he's messaging at that level. And then at the same time, you have, you know, and this has been going back for 30 years, um, very frequent Russian overflights, military overflights going to the colony of Kaliningrad, which is, you know, the ancient Prussian city that um, was awarded to Russia at the end of World War II, ethnically cleansed of all Germans and made a Russian city, uh, you know, a little Russian um, island in Europe. Um, for, you know, decades, Russian military planes flying there have overflown Finnish, Swedish, Danish, Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, Polish airspace. And um, he says his nuclear forces are on alert. And then you have, you know, five military planes over flying Swedish airspace. It's like, come on, man. You know, I mean, it shows kind of an imperfect command and control. You know, I mean, that's that's something they do all the time. But you'd expect if he says, OK, this is a nuclear situation, he tells armed forces, guys, you know, be careful with how you fly. I mean, the, the U.S. was supposed to test the ballistic missile today. It was scheduled months in advance and we postponed it because we said, no, we don't want this to be misinterpreted at all. Um, but but he's in a different He's got different considerations. And I think I think he feels that if there's not a victory in Ukraine, even if that victory leaves Ukraine an ungovernable, economically unsustainable pile of rubble, um, if he does not have a victory, then his own rule is in peril. And that that makes him very, very dangerous. Well, very dangerous. I, I think that's that's a tr that's a really good uh, overview and, and gives us some insight. And it's interesting when you when you outline, you know, the, the political situation of the UK, France mm -hmm. and Germany at the time when he's maybe yeah. brainstorming this. So in 2013, <clears throat> year before they invaded Crimea and took Crimea, the economic output in Russia was 2.2 trillion. Yeah. 2019, after sanctions have been applied, so and so on, so so, but pre-pandemic, economic output in Russia was 1.66 trillion. So it hadn't even recovered back to pre-Crimea. <clears throat> I can't imagine where it's going to be now. And well, and, well, a lot of that, a lot of that is is oil. Oil, pricing. correct. But yeah. you know, and and, and uh, I hear you on that. But it, that's not all their income. I mean, they they're they're being mm -hmm. shut out, you know, financially, so many ways. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, and that's going to that's going to create tremendous pressure at home mm-hmm. for the populace. You know, lending sort of contributing to what you're talking about. He's got this <clears throat> self-imposed onus to to uh, come with a victory or some save face somehow. Yeah. Uh, and then he's going to have a I can't imagine anything but a fairly disgruntled uh, population that's paying higher prices as uh, harder li- hard, life is harder all the way around. Can't travel. All his cronies have assets taken away. It's I, I as I said earlier, I don't understand why this master of the Great War, this master of coming right up to the threshold and moving back, right. but you know has been able to destabilize U.S. politics, been able to destabilize you know all across the board, decides to do this. Just extraordinary yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you look back at it in retrospect, his victories have all come. Um, it's it's really good selection of his victims. So one of one of the things we're talking about militarily uh, in military circles is the basic unit that he's operating with. Basic military units is called a battalion tactical group, which has tanks and artillery and air defense and motorized infantry. But it doesn't have a lot of motorized infantry, and those troops are generally not very well trained. And um, it appears that they were designed to operate in places like Luhansk, where there was a local insurgency. And so the motorized infantry could just focus on traveling with the tanks as fast as they can. And if there's a roadblock, you dismount the infantry, they do it. But they wouldn't provide like flank security against saboteurs or hunter killer teams because your local auxiliaries, the Donetsk People's Republic, you know, whatever the Russian lackeys are of the day, they would do that. And so now that he's in an area where he didn't have that, um, these guys are, you know, roadbound and um, scared and stuck and, you know, logistical convoys being ambushed and people run out of gas. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of problems. That's a distinct, again, before we start recording, that's a distinction you drew between Crimea and this. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think, you know, one of the, when we're in a philosophical mood, one of the things military guys talk about is, is it better for an army to have a victory or a defeat? You always learn more from a defeat than from a victory. And uh, I think that the Crimea victory was deceptively easy for him. And I think he just, you know, imposed it, you know, figured Ukraine would be Crimea writ large, uh, relatively bloodless, relatively painless, um, really only of interest to a few people after a few weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, he just, he just, you know, mis- but, you know, as a layman, you hear all this out there, you know, the, the, the Soviets are, 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 you know, honing their craft in Syria and, he, you know, he's mm-hmm. ragging, uh, you know, Donald Trump about his hypersonic missiles. And, and yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the sense has been that they've, they've made leaps and bounds and have perhaps surpassed the U.S. in certain areas. And, and mm-hmm. I don't ascribe, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, I think Russia is going to take Ukraine and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be, as you say, it's going to be a, a siege. Um, you know, I don't ascribe uh, the failures to uh, a lack of military prowess, but uh, mostly to, I describe it mostly to hubris. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I think you can, but th- there are some concerning things. I mean, again, I went back to the point about local auxiliaries acting as security and so um, in Syria, he had that. It was the Syrian Arab army. Um, you know, he doesn't have it here. And, and there have been concerns about certain aspects. Um, one of the weapon systems that people thought was a world beater up to about five years ago was the short range uh, air defense system, the Panzer S1, which was actually purchased by the UAE, for example. And, uh, you know, the Russians have lost probably, you know, the, the, I, I know prior to the war in Ukraine, 23 of them had been killed in places like Syria and Libya, and uh, I think in Armenia, and they've lost a lot more. Um, so, you know, there are there are some basic problems. It's it. What we've seen is a lack of ability to um, target, which we also saw in Syria. You know, you had indiscriminate bombing. They were good at bombing fixed infrastructure, uh, hospitals, um, uh, in Syria. Uh, because you know where those are. They're easy to find. And what we saw at the start of the Ukraine war, you know, was a couple of missiles hitting fixed targets. Um, Now we don't see military targets being hit by missiles. We see civilian infrastructure for the most part because that's what you can find, which means they're unable to identify and shift targets 
to hit these things. So they, they've got they've got a problem there. They've clearly got a problem with deployable logistics. Um, they've got a problem with command and control, where we see you know a convoy bogging down and commanders being able to either reinforce that or shift their main effort around. Instead, they just push push, which is why you get a forty mile long convoy. Um, but you know, once it all gets bogged down, one thing they're very good at is bringing all the missiles online and all the rockets and artillery and shooting them all in one direction. So I, I fear that, you know, they're going to revert to what they, you know, do best historically. And boy, that's going to be ugly. Yeah, I had seen some reports that the uh, surprise at the either reluctance to use or the shortage of precision, precision guided munitions. You know, where are yes. these? Mm -hmm. uh, they just haven't yeah. been deployed in, in bulk there. Yeah, what I've heard is shortage of and also concern about, um, I think there's probably three things. There's there's a shortage of, I think there's a, um, going back to that, I don't think, I think they're, they clear, appear to have some problems with targeting. And so they don't want to use expensive, uh, high demand, low density weapons until they're absolutely sure that they get a suitable target. Um, and then I think also there's a fear that, um, uh, with their really good stuff, if they use it in Ukraine, it, it might uh, uh, find its way back here and be taken <laughs> apart. So a follow-up question to that, actually, and, and I just want to go on the record really quickly. Uh, I don't think that Russia is going to end up taking Ukraine. Um, I just want to be the, okay. I want to be on the record now. This thing lives good. forever on YouTube. So I just want to be on the record saying that. Of course, well, I could well, be wrong. Okay, yeah, let, let me give you. So, so I didn't get asked that question. I got asked, is Russia going to win? And right. Or, or beauty, what would a the Russia being win the aggressor like, state? Yeah. yeah. The beauty of being the aggressor state is you get to define what a win is. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think probably the worst case scenario is like, I don't see Russia um, attacking all the way to the border with Romania um, uh, and Poland. Um, I see them probably trying to hive off the area north of the Dnieper River um, and uh, basically having everything east of the Dnieper um, and Crimea as one entity, possibly including the coast along uh, Odessa. And then the rest is they'd leave this rump landlocked state that doesn't have any natural gas lines across it um, mm. and basically call that, and, and is occupied by Catholics, not Orthodox, and call that Farmlandia and leave that to itself uh, as sort of a, you know, like Moldova. So, so yeah. my just to my follow up question was to that because I'm I'm very interested in you mentioned sort of, sort of the the failure of the invasion to work out as originally conceived or planned or or executed it turned into sort of this really violent situation and now we're in the siege warfare situation you mentioned where it's starting to get a lot less you know focused on military targets and more on just destruction and trying to bend Ukraine to Russia's will. Yeah. As the West watches that and as the West sort of like looks at their sanctions, you know, in place, obviously very devastating. But as the West, the West watches, is there anything that can drag NATO into this short of an attack on NATO? Like, is there some shocking event that everybody in the West can say, all right, that we've had enough. We can't watch this anymore. I mean, do you do you see that yeah. happening at all? Well, you know, I mean. So a Romanian uh, fighter airplane uh, was reported lost over the Black Sea, and there was a little bit of a kerfuffle over that, you know, and, and uh, I think I think now it's it's appearing that that was um, uh, uh, basically a training accident. Uh, there was an Estonian commercial vessel that has sunk, appears that hit a naval mine off of Odessa. Um, so, you know, there have been some NATO assets that have been in, you know, possibly involved in stuff, but um, I don't think so, to be honest, no. Um, I think that uh, if Putin is, meets, you know, if he reverses his courses and meets with success, the guys that really are concerned about this are Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, which are also former <laughs> members of the Soviet Union, although they were incorporated, you know, relatively recently in 1940, while Hitler and Stalin were allied. Um, and, you know, like Lithuania, I think 40% of the population of Lithuania is ethnically Russian. So, uh, you know, those, those countries are very, very concerned. Uh, and I think that the alliance, and I think that those three members are like, this is horrible, but at the end of the day, you know, I mean, when I worked NATO affairs, oh gosh, two, 
2006, I was I was at a NATO defense ministerial and there was discussion of um, Ukrainian accession to the alliance. And we're like, well, they're just not ready and it's too far and it's too hard. You know, so but these three countries are members of NATO. So I think what they you know, I think they will say, yes, you know, Ukraine accession to NATO has been discussed. They're not members of NATO. We can't extend membership to them because of the situation. Unfortunately, Um, we do need to focus on the countries that are members of NATO that either were part of the Soviet Union or were part of the Warsaw Pact and particularly Poland, Romania. Uh, They're very concerned about this, which, you know, Putin has called for, you know, if you take him at face value, his argument for Ukraine is identical to his argument for Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those countries, you know, have very, uh, you know, they, they've got legit beef. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it's um, as far as I could tell, I'm not an expert, but it, they, Ukraine was not uh, there. There was significant reluctance on the part of NATO and, and key members to ever let Ukraine in. Um, yeah. I can't read Putin's mind. I mean, I don't know anybody who can. But I, again, I'm still bewildered by the the tactics and the timing well what, what's so what's so shocking about it is you know until putin went on the war path nato was really nothing it it you know macron called it brain dead in 2016 uh and i keep reminding people as they forget you know everybody in the back to the middle east everybody in the middle east was terrified about the pivot when the pivot right. was announced in 2010 in u.s defense policy they all thought that meant the united states says okay you're on your own we're, we're all going to okinawa um, but the pivot was really away from Europe, <laughs> and uh, the uh, we started withdrawing troops by 2014. 2014 was the first year since 1944 that there was not an American tank on German soil. Wow. We withdrew <laughs> all our army, and uh, what you saw was that European countries joined NATO, and then they said, "Okay, the Americans are here. We don't have to pay for defense anymore." And you can see their defense spending going down. You know, you, Germany particularly was, um, you know, there was a remarkable tweet by the head of the German Armed Forces where he basically said, I can't do anything because we have systemic underinvestment. We don't have the capacity, which was just remarkable. Um, a great act of political courage. Um, but, uh, you know, Putin's revitalized it. Um, you know, and, and the German spending bill is a sea change. Uh, oh, my. You know, yeah. Um, so he's kind of created uh, what he claims to be frightened of. I mean, the European view of NATO prior to 2008, the Georgia War, was that it was the junior varsity European Union. It was where you went to prove that you could follow rules and uh, participate, you know, had some shared values, were capable of participating in Western European institutions so that you might eventually accede to the European Union. And the idea that it was a military alliance, you know, they, I, I don't even think they drew uh, defensive plans for the newly accessioned members of NATO because history had ended, they wouldn't need it. So, um, you know, Putin has made NATO a military alliance again, and then it's just incredibly boneheaded. This is yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, and, and to take some lingo from your favorite sport, Dave, this is a this is really an own goal by Putin. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I, so, I, I oh, by the way, to... so you know, Putin scored what like four goals against Alex Ovechkin when he was playing. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, that's uh, fascinating stuff. Tough time for Ovi for sure. Yeah. As, oh, as a friend of Putin, I just saw that it just came on. Uh, Luke Oil has called for an immediate end of the Ukrainian war. I think the pressure is really ratcheting up with every $800 million yacht that is seized or a Russian energy <laughs> company that wants out. Very, very interesting stuff. Richard, do you have any more? I mean, I have three questions here that I'd love to ask. I, but I, I have a million, but we, we got it. You know, Dave has a life. Um, <laughs> Actually, we, I, we have to stop at some point. <laughs> I, 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 th- th- these reports that I have a life are, are exaggerated. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, that, really good. I, I think. Yeah, I think. I think this would be a good stopping point. Uh, Dave, is there anything you'd want to add? Is there something that you? Well, would... I, I want. I want to bring back to the Gulf. I mean, um, usually with every war, um, there's like a hot weapon system that comes out, and and our partners in the Gulf in Saudi Arabia 
are usually saying, okay, we want that or we want something like it, you know? So uh, the Armenia war, it was the TB2 drone uh, uh, with the um, uh, Desert Storm was Patriot missile. Um, what's really interesting here is we haven't seen a dominant weapon system emerge yet from this war. Um, and I'm, I'm watching that kind of closely and I'm watching, uh, uh, you know, I'm conversing with uh, a lot of our friends in the kingdom and, and places around it to see what's going to emerge as the big deal. But uh, right now, as, as we were talking before we got on the air, most of the conversation today about military technology revolves around the tires that the Russians are putting on their vehicles. So, and the, so and the javelin. <laughs> yeah, javelin. Javelin, of course. But Javelin's already been in play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and most of our partners already have Javelin. So, Take a moment, David, and, and share us with this tire store because that speaks to the preparation and planning. Yeah. So this was a, um, a bunch of guys on Twitter, military Twitter this morning we're talking about. Um, uh, when you look at all these uh, really quite striking pictures of nearly pristine Russian vehicles abandoned, uh, like an S-1 Panzer air defense system, which is supposed to be a world beater, um, the tires were either deflated or shredded. You know, you'd see just um, just axles. And um, the theory is that, you know, most military wheeled vehicles, even some track vehicles have a compressed tire inflation system where compressed air inflation system where, you know, the operator can put more air in or take it out based on the surface, surface that's going on. Well, if, if the vehicles have that, and you don't fire them up every once in a while, you don't move them, the tires um, get eroded by sunlight. So you have to move the tires a lot. You have to cover them. You have to maintain them. And it appears that, you know, you have a conscript army in Russia. So very expensive machinery. You only use it like once a year and then you just leave it there and you polish it. And that the tires uh, are, which looked like the Michelin XZL, which is like the state-of-the-art military tire, but apparently they are Chinese yellow C20 tires. <laughs> I got into this, I got into this, <laughs> which are an inferior substitute. And they, when you put in that compressed air, you know, if they go off road, you know, then you, you mess with the air and the sidewalls of the tires are blowing out. And so that both explains why you're seeing all this abandoned stuff, as well as why you have this long convoy and all these vehicles even when they run out of gas, they don't go off the road because if they have to use the compressed air inflation system, then the tires will blow out. And of course, your next question is, why didn't they have spare tires? Well, um, that's where you get into the possibility of low level corruption because tires are one of the things, you know, that militaries, you know, they're expendable. So you can't, you know, expect, you know, if, if a unit gets 15 tires, you don't come back in a year and say, where are those 15 tires? Because you wear through them, but they do have commercial value and can't be sold. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a possibility of mismanagement, poor maintenance, and possibilities of low-level corruption. So to our benefit, Dave is officially in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, <nice>. sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's awesome. That's fascinating stuff. <laughs> and and while we have while we're mentioning Twitter, follow uh, Dave on Twitter at DB Desroche. Um, just really, really good stuff. I mean, it's it's it, your 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 way in this, so it's it's a great follow. Do yourself a, the biggest favor you'll do yourself this week and follow David on Twitter. Um, let's move on to Yella, gentlemen. Um, Richard, go ahead and get us started. Um, Yella, yes, uh, Yella, big finish. I have that in parentheses. Nice uh, one. <laughs> You're back according, on the script now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, according to a report in Arab News, Saudi Arabia on Monday welcomed the UN Security Council's resolution labeling the Houthi militia fighting Yemen a terrorist group. In addition to expanding the scope of existing arms embargo to encompass the entire membership of the Iran-backed group, uh, which was uh, previously limited to specific individuals and companies. Mm. Dave, is this a big deal? It is. It is. I mean, there. Um, the the big concern, of course, was the Biden administration removing the Houthis from the, the terrorism sanctions list, and um, uh, that wasn't really understood. I mean, I, I think that first off, the Trump administration didn't put them on the list until they were out the door, like the last week of their uh, right. time, because they realized the problems it would cause for humanitarian agencies. Um, the Biden administration removed it. Our friends in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, and in Abu Dhabi, and Qatar, they believe that um, that meant the United States said, oh no, the Houthis are the same as the International Red Cross. But the um, the Houthis actually remained, you know, in the 
they're described as a terrorist movement in the State Department reports on terrorism. It was just a specific policy step of economic sanctions. Um, that distinction is lost in the Gulf. Uh, nobody gets that. Um, so I think that anything that labels you know, the Houthis are a terrorist movement, and I think that anything that labels them that way is a good thing. Um, I do agree that the uh, specific U.S. government sanctions would basically make starvation in Yemen worse, and we basically made a policy decision that the hostage takers would not suffer as much as the hostages, which I agree with. Mm. Tough situation. Um, number two, another week, another big Saudi IPO, Naughty Medical Company. Saudi Arabia's market leader in retail pharmacies aims to raise up to 5.11 billion rials, $1.36 billion, or 1.2 Russian yachts in the country's biggest IPO since Saudi Aramco's listing in 2019, according to a report in Reuters. Also recently, Al Dawa Medical Services Company, one of the largest pharmaceutical retail companies in Saudi Arabia, announced that it will list 25.5 million shares on the Saudi stock market, seeking to raise about $500 million. Two big pharma IPOs in the last week. The IPO market in Saudi Arabia is red hot. Yeah. Isn't it great? Neither one of these has an apparent government connection. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, any kind of company that, you know, was just one or two steps removed from the government. This is really free market stuff. I mean, the, the, um, the, the market reforms and come on, capital is the ultimate coward, right? So the fact that people are willing to put millions of dollars in their own stuff into a commercial market that, you know, in the United States is more heavily regulated than it is in Saudi Arabia, you know, um, uh, really shows just the progress that they've made, you know, that they can appeal to individual investors. Um, you know, who are who are making financial decisions. It's not a patriotism levy for a parastatal firm. I think I think this is just incredible. It shows how far uh, we are, you know, towards the goals of Vision 2030. That's such wow. a great point. Uh, yeah, that hits it right on the head. I mean, you've got 50 applications for for uh, IPOs in 2022, mm -hmm. and um, and just as you say, that's because it's a real deal. You know, this yeah. is, and they're not all. Some of them are PIF owns. Uh, some of them are having off of a government entity of other sort. But the, the the majority of them now are private companies going public for for good financial reason. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me a little bit. I think this is you know that Atlantic article on uh, Mohammed bin Salman. You know about Mohammed bin Salman along with his participation. You know one of the things he says. One of it talks about is his frustration with the U.S and not understanding how much has changed. And yeah. this is an example of real change, you know, a significant, just significant accomplishment to create this kind of market that, as you say, is not contingent on government uh, inducement or other mm -hmm. reasons. It's just, yeah. it happens because it makes good financial sense. Yeah. Uh, number three. Uh, Saudi Arabia announced the discovery of five new gas wells in four separate regions across the kingdom with the capacity to produce, produce 100 million cubic feet per day. The fields are all non-associated, and two of them would produce unconventional shale gas. Great. That's great news. So it's not a huge adjustment in their total output. They're putting out 11 billion per day now, but it's still significant. Um, uh, this, is, this is piling on. Mm -hmm. you know, they have they have the second largest gas reserves in the world. So I mean, this is I think this is notable mostly because it's not associated and yeah. you know, but it, it is good. It is good, and 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 they really want to you know ramp up uh, natural gas production. So it's great news. I, we don't know if any of these will actually be come into play, but it's nice to know you have them. Well, you know, I mean, uh, well, the last time I looked at the, uh, this, this is a little bit of part of my field, but the last time I looked at this, um, the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the demand, Saudi demand for gas exceeded supply and they were burning oil to generate electricity. So, right. you know, that oil needs to go into chemical feedstocks. It needs to go into more higher value added things. And, uh, you know, I, I think natural gas is, you know, for domestic purposes, is the way to do that. Spot on. Number four, local runner Emblem Road, long shot, was the shocking winner of the $20 million Saudi Cup 
the Saudi-trained horse rallied with a wide, sweeping move on the outside to win the $20 million Saudi Cup at 80-1 to 1 odds. I hope you gentlemen didn't lose your betting tickets. Um, established in 2020 and organized by the Jockey Club of Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Cup is a two-day international racing festival headlined by... Uh, the $20 million prize. Richard, you sent me a video of this as soon as it happened. It's crazy stuff. Awesome. It's awesome, awesome. Nice. yeah. Oh. Um. Uh, you know, it's, you know, if this is completely inappropriate, but, you know, if, if I'm playing golf with a buddy or, or not, not golf, let's talk a real sport it's for Dave's purpose, but, you know, somebody <laughs> makes I'm playing basketball. Wait, we did mention uh, golf I'm, this I'm episode. playing basketball and somebody's really hot. You know, I say, you know, you must be going, you must, you must have gone to church this, this Sunday. Right. Uh, and I think the Saudis have been going to church to mix, you know, really mix metaphors because all their major, their major sporting events have coincided yep. with enormously exciting. The Formula One race, you know, that whole season mm -hmm. uh, was massively exciting. One of the most exciting seasons yep. in recent memory. This, this uh, Saudi international. Your good friend uh, Harry Varner, Ben Varner, Ben Ben Varner, Harold <laughs> <Sorry>. Ben Varner, <laughs> yeah, Ben Harold, Harold Varner the third. Lucian said that's how he's known in Saudi Arabia, but Harold Ben Harold Ben Harold Al Varner. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> he hits he hits a ninety plus foot putt on eighteen to wow. win to win it. And then yeah. and then we have this local uh, locally raised and trained and. Uh, 80 to 1 you know horse come yeah. wide on the turn come thundering down the final stretch to take the the richest cup in the world uh, just you know things are going well in saudi arabia yeah i'm just happy if if i had money on an 80 to 1 horse in two years i would not own anything because <laughs> i would <laughs> put all put that on other horses try to do that again <laughs> well we all know the answer to that is to go to church dave yeah, so here's enough church, you know, looking looking for that next eighty to one winner. Oh my god! Here is a question: Is there is there sports betting in Saudi Arabia now? I don't think there is. No, I don't think so. But you can just you can you know boat dog or whatever offshore. Well, actually, because I think it's mandated, you can't have sports betting without alcohol. So therefore. <laughs> That's right. You don't want too much judgment in your sports betting. No, exactly. I think I, th I well, I, you know, I'm trying to think when I go to um, off track betting, um, I I can't recall if I've seen wagers taken on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, number five: construction of the Qatar Saudi Arabia section of the long planned GCC railway project will begin soon. The 2,177 kilometer project is expected to cost 250 billion dollars each of the six nations will be responsible for implementing the portion of the project that lies within their territory so overdue yeah, overdue overdue, overdue is word. but and 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 you know because this has been planned for years if it was ever going to happen it happened now don't you think dave you there's some yeah. rapprochement there's money. well you've got a rapprochement and you've got uh brent crude at 120 dollars a bill <laughs> so so let's uh you know i mean there's an economic uh, uh, impetus for it. There's political impetus for it with GCC unification. There's social impetus for it. There's a military impetus for it um, in terms of securing, you know, there, there needs to be a stable rail link connecting the states on the Gulf with the ports on the Red Sea, um, both to eliminate port congestion as well as, you know, just for security planning. Yeah. Excellent point. Uh, no completion date yet set for that, but long overdue, agreed. Number six, uh, Saudi Arabia's newest travel experience is inspired by the renowned Burning Man Festival in the United States. Caravan by Habitas al-Ola will open in March in one of the oldest cities on the Arabian Peninsula. Surrounded by mountains and ancient Nabataean settlements, Caravan al-Ola consists of 22 Airstream trailers. Glamping has, has hit Saudi Arabia. Um, actually, glamping's kind of always been around, at least every time I've been camping in Saudi Arabia, it has not been bare bones, but um, very, very cool to see this. Al-Ola is really rad. We got to check it out soon. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, with this option, we may actually be able to afford to check it out because the caravan, you know, the, the Airstream cost, it says it's about 400 per night as opposed to the Habitas Al-Ula, which is much more upscale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, I'd be more than willing to, to stay in, a, in, a, in an Airstream in, in Alula. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I, I got to tell you, Elula has such buzz. And I, I have to go there, but yeah. it's just, you know, it's it's like the hidden treasure. Absolutely. It looks, it looks so cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is awesome. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Colonel DeRoche, just the best guest. Very interesting discussion oh. we had on Ukraine. Um, follow him on Twitter. Just, uh, Dave, thank you so much. This is a really great discussion. We'd love to have you back as soon as you can do it. Oh, it's an honor. It's an honor. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Dave. As I said, you're the greatest of all time for 966. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't talk golf at all, which is kind of amazing. I noticed oh, that. A little bit, Except yeah. Except for Henry, Ben, Henry, Ben, Henry. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh no, thanks guys.